Chapter Twelve of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography Memories and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twelve. Being homeless in the north, my summer vacation, 1853, was passed at Concord. The Emersons found for me a very pleasant abode at Hillside, on Pocatasset Hill, about a mile out of the village, where Ellery Channing once lived, and where he wrote his poem on New England. Two sisters, the Mrs. Hunt, educated ladies, received me into this pleasant cottage, where I was the only boarder. These ladies were cousins of Miss Martha Hunt, whose suicide in Concord River and the discovery of her body are described in Hawthorne's Blythedale Romance. They were troubled because G. W. Curtis, in his Homes of American Authors, had suggested that Martha's suicide was due to the contrast between her transcendental ideals and the coarseness of her home. They described the family of their cousin as educated people. One of these sisters walked with me to the river and pointed out all the places connected with the tragedy, and some years later another cousin drowned herself there. Emerson introduced me to his friends. First of all, he took me to Henry Thoreau, who lived in the village with his parents and his sister. The kindly and silent pencil-maker, his father, John Thoreau, was French in appearance, and Henry resembled him physically but neither parent impressed me as possessing mental qualities that could account for such a rare spirit as Henry. He was thirty-six when I met him. He received me pleasantly, and asked what we were studying at Cambridge. I answered, the scriptures. Which? he asked. Emerson said, you will find our Thoreau a sad pagan. Thoreau had long been a reverent reader of Oriental scriptures, and showed me his Bibles, translated from various languages, into French and English. He invited me to come next day for a walk, but in the morning I found the Thoreaus agitated by the arrival of a colored fugitive from Virginia, who had come to their door at daybreak. Thoreau took me to a room where his excellent sister, Sophia, was ministering to the fugitive, who recognized me as one he had seen. He was alarmed, but his fears passed into delight when, after talking with him about our country, I certified his genuineness. I observed the tender and lowly devotion of Thoreau to the African. He now and then drew near to the trembling man, and with a cheerful voice bade him feel at home, and have no fear that any power should again wrong him. That whole day he mounted guard over the fugitive, for it was a slave-hunting time but the guard had no weapon, and probably there was no such thing in the house. The next day the fugitive was got off to Canada, and I enjoyed my first walk with Thoreau. He was a unique man every way. He was short of stature, well built, every movement was full of courage and repose. His eyes were very large and bright, as if caught from the sky. His nose is like the prow of a ship, said Emerson one day, he had the look of the huntsman of Emerson's quatrain. He took the color of his vest from rabbit's coat and grouse's breast, for as the wild kinds lurk and hide, so walks the huntsman unespied. The cruelest weapons, however, which this huntsman took with him, were lenses and an old book in which to press plants. 
he was not talkative but his occasional monologues were extraordinary i remember being surprised at every step with revelations of laws and significant attributes and common things as a relation between different kinds of grass and the geological characters beneath them the variety and grouping of pine needles and the effect of these differences on the sounds they yield when struck by the wind and the varieties of taste represented by grasses and common herbs when applied to the tongue he offered me a peculiar grass to chew for an instant saying it is a little sharp but an experience deep in the woods his face shone with a new light he had a mental calendar of the flora of the neighbourhood and would go some distance around to visit some floral friend we were too early for the hibiscus a rare flower in new england which i desired to see he pointed out the spot near the river where alone it could be found and said that it would open about the following monday and not stay long i went on tuesday or wednesday but it was too late the petals were scattered on the ground thoreau ate no meat he told me his only reason was a feeling of the filthiness of flesh-eating a bear huntsman he thought was entitled to his stake he had never attempted to make any general principle on the subject and later in life ate meat in order not to cause inconvenience to the family on our first walk i told him the delight with which i read his book a week on the concord and merrimack rivers he said that the whole edition remained on the shelf of his publisher who wished to get rid of them if he could not succeed in giving them away they would probably be sold as old paper i got from him valuable hints about reading he had studied carefully the old english chronicles and chaucer froissart spencer and beaumont and fletcher he recognized kindred spirits in george herbert cowley and quarles considering the latter a poet but not an artist he explored the old books of voyages drake purchas and others who assisted him in his circumnavigation of concord the oriental books were his daily bread the greeks especially aeschylus whose prometheus and the seven against thebes he translated finely were his luxuries he was an exact greek scholar of moderns he praised wordsworth coleridge and to a less extent carlyle and gotha he admired ruskin's modern painters though he thought the author bigoted but in the seven lamps of architecture he found with the good stuff quote, too much about art for me and the hottentots our house is yet a hut end quote. he enjoyed william gilpin's hints on landscape gardening tour of the river wye he had read with care the works of franklin he had as a touchstone for authors their degree of ability to deal with supersensual facts and feelings with scientific precision what he admired in emerson was that he discerned the phenomena of thought and functions of every idea as if they were antennae or stamina it was a quiet joke in concord that thoreau resembled emerson in expression and in tones of voice he had grown up from boyhood under emerson's influence had listened to his lectures and his conversations and little by little had grown this resemblance it was the more interesting because so superficial and unconscious thoreau was an imitator of no mortal but emerson had long been a part of the very atmosphere of concord and it was as if this element had deposited on thoreau a mystical moss 
During that halcyon summer I read the Oriental books in Emerson's library, for he not only advised me in my studies, but insisted on lending me books. To my hesitation about taking even to Pocatasset the precious volumes, he said, What are they for? In my dainty little room, whose window opened on a beautiful landscape, with the Muscatoquit running through it to the Merrimack, or perhaps seated in the vine-coloured veranda, I read Wilkins's Bhagavat Gita, which henceforth became part of my canon. Close indeed to my heart came the narrative of the charioteer, the god Krishna in disguise, driving Arjuna to the field, where the youth sees that his struggle is to be with his parents, teachers, early companions. Emerson also introduced me to the Persian desatir. In lending me this, he said that he regarded the ancient Persian scriptures as more intellectual than the sacred writings of other races. I found delight in these litanies uttered in the beginning of our era, amid whose exaltations there was always the happy beam of reason. Thy knowledge is a ray of the knowledge of God. O oh, my prophet ever near me, I have given thee an exalted angel named intelligence. How can we know a prophet? By his giving you information regarding your own heart. Emerson also in that summer introduced me to Saadi of Shiraz, who has been to me as an intimate friend through life's pilgrimage. For the Rose Garden, Gulistan, I had been prepared by my garden in Frederick Circuit, my seclusival. Saadi was its interpreter, and restored it to me. For I could not enter deeply into wild nature, but dearly loved a garden. One day when I was walking with Emerson in his garden, he stopped near a favorite plum and said, This is when ripe, a fruit of paradise. He then discovered one that was ripe, and managed to pluck it for me. How simply was this man fulfilling all my youthful dreams! He personally loved Saadi, and later edited the Gulistan. One day he told me he had found somewhere a story about him. Saadi was travelling on foot towards Damascus, alone and weary. Presently he overtook a boy travelling the same way, and asked him to point out the road. The boy offered to guide him some distance, and in the course of conversation Saadi spoke of having come from Persia and from Shiraz. "'Shiraz!' exclaimed the boy. "'Then perhaps you can tell me something of Sheikh Saadi of Shiraz.' The traveller said, "'I am Saadi.' Instantly the boy knelt, and with tears kissed the hem of his skirt, and after that could not be parted from Saadi, but guided and served him during his stay in Damascus." and lo, here I am with my grey hairs seeing my own Saadi, as he told me the little tale that filled my eyes, all unconscious that my soul was that of the Damascus boy, and was kissing the hem of his garment. I made the acquaintance of several elderly persons in Concord, who told me incidents related by their grandparents concerning the Concord fight of April 19, 1775, but I was too much interested in the heroes of 1853 to care much for those of the old revolution. One day Emerson pointed out to me across the street the venerable Honorable Samuel Hoare and his daughter Elizabeth, who told me the story of their visit to Charleston, South Carolina, 1844, the eminent lawyer being commissioned by his state to plead for the release of Massachusetts seamen seized from ships and imprisoned there because of their color. Amid threats of violence, the lawyer and his daughter were driven out of Charleston unheard. 
I had not known this, and thenceforth bowed low whenever I passed the old lawyer. Without any historic halo, the Honorable Samuel Hoare would have arrested the attention of a stranger, not only by his very tall thin form and the small face, blond and beardless, that looked as if it came out of Bellini's canvas, but also by his dreamy look and movement. He was seventy-five, but no indications of age explained that absorbed look. Probably it was this as well as the face that suggested to Emerson a resemblance to Dante. He is a saint, said Emerson, as the old gentleman passed one day. He no longer dwells with us down on earth. There could hardly be a greater contrast than that between the old man and his son, Judge Rockwood Hoare, and I should think also Senator Hoare, so far as appearance went, for the latter I knew only by seeing him occasionally. The judge, as Lowell calls him in the Biglow Papers, made an admirable Attorney General of the United States, but his force was almost formidable in Little Concord. One felt in meeting him that the glasses on those bright eyes were microscopic, and that he was under impending cross-examination. He was rationalistic and a free soiler, though his anti-slavery record did not satisfy abolitionists. The judge was unconscious of the satirical accent in his humor. He was personally devoted to Emerson, who, however, rather dreaded him, as he told me half-humorously, on account of his tendencies to argumentative and remorselessly logical talk. The judge, however, was very amiable in his family, and especially with his sister, Elizabeth. This lady, who resembled the father more than her brothers did, was most lovely and intellectual. The death of Emerson's brilliant brother Charles, to whom Miss Elizabeth was betrothed, was the pathetic legend of Concord, and the reverential affection of Emerson for her represented a sentiment of the community. But the lady, in a sense widowed, was interested and active in all the culture and affairs of Concord. Her sorrows had turned to sunshine for those around her. Mrs. Ripley, the widow of the Reverend Samuel Ripley, a kinsman of Emerson, occupied the famous Old Manse. An admirable sketch of her life was written by Elizabeth Hoare. She had a wide reputation for learning. I had heard at Cambridge that when students were rusticated, they used to board at Concord in order to be coached by her. She was a fine botanist. A legend ran that Professor Gray called on her and found her instructing a student in differential calculus, correcting the Greek translation of another, and at the same time shelling peas and rocking her grandchild's cradle with her foot. But never was lady more simple and unostentatious. In her sixty-third year she was handsome, and her intelligent interest extended from her fruit-trees and poultry to the profoundest problems of her time. Thus the old manse had for me precious mosses which Hawthorne had not gathered. Her daughters Phoebe and Sophia, afterwards wife of Professor Thayer of Cambridge, always met me with a friendliness greatly remembered. No doubt they and other ladies in Concord bore in mind that I was far away from my relatives. I found in Mrs. Ripley an intelligent sympathizer with my advancing religious ideas. She was a theist through recognition of a supreme reason intimated in the facts of individual reason. She said, I cannot believe in miracles because I believe in God. 
the subject of spirit manifestations was considered by her worthy of study only as a contemporary illustration of the fallaciousness of human testimony wherever emotions or passions are involved people believe what they've a mind to she said the well-informed rationalism of mrs ripley and of her nearest friend elizabeth hoare led me to suppose that the ideas of emerson were universal in concord in this however i presently discovered my mistake one day when i was with emerson and his wife he referred to gotha and i perceived that the great german was a sort of bogey to her she quoted verbatim two sentences from a letter written to her by her husband before their marriage in which he expressed misgivings about Gotha, beneath whose fine utterances he had found no faith. Emerson was silent, and his wife went on in a way almost pathetic to describe her need of faith. When after the talk at dinner I was walking with Emerson, he said that Gotha had written some things, elective affinities for instance, which could really be read only by minds which had undergone individual training. He was the only great writer who had turned upon the moral conventions, and demanded by what right they claimed to control his life. But people with eyes could not omit Gotha. Mr. William Emerson, an eminent lawyer of New York, occasionally visited his younger brother in Concord. I remember him as an interesting gentleman, and was surprised to find any lawyer with his unworldly and even poetic look in a letter from germany of william emerson shown me by his son dr emerson of new york he speaks of his acquaintance with gotha william was studying divinity but found that he had not even socinian faith enough to preach and was in distress about the disappointment to his parents gotha advised him not to disappoint them but go on with his ministry i think the gothian cult at cambridge and concord had cooled and by the way there was a droll relic of it in the emerson household one of the children edith i think had the fancy to name her handsome cat gotha emerson affected to take it seriously and once when the cat was in the library and scratched itself he opened the door and politely said gotha you must retire i don't like your manners i managed to make friends with the conquered children never had a small town a more charming circle of lovely children the children of emerson of judge rockwood hoare of the loring and barrett families mostly girls between ten and twelve years were all pretty and intelligent and as it was vacation time they were prepared for walks picnics boating etc other of their elders beside myself found delight in the society of these young people especially thoreau he used to take us out on the river in his boat and by his scientific talk guide us into the water lilies fairyland he showed us his miracle of putting his hand into the water and bringing up a fish i remember ellen emerson asking her father whom shall we invite to the picnic his answer being all children from six years to sixty then there were huckleberrying parties these were under the guidance of thoreau because he alone knew the precise locality of every variety of the berry I recall an occasion when little Edward Emerson, carrying a basket of fine huckleberries, had a fall and spilt them all. Great was his distress, and our offers of berries could not console him for the loss of those gathered by himself. But Thoreau came, put his arm around the troubled child, 
and explained to him that if the crop of huckleberries was to continue it was necessary that some should be scattered nature had provided that little boys should now and then stumble and sow the berries we shall have a grand lot of bushes and berries in this spot and we shall owe them to you edward began to smile not far from hillside resided a lonely old man with whom i exchanged greetings bereft of wife and children he found consolation in spiritualism the hunt ladies thought that he was suffering his cottage and garden to fall gradually into ruin because of his absorption in another world and giving his money to a medium for bringing him communications from his wife and children he was eager to convince me and said that if i would visit mrs freeman in boston and did not find something worth examining in this matter he would not go there again whereupon i went off to boston and mrs freeman ushered into the mysterious presence i found a substantial dark-eyed sibyl seated on a little throne i was placed in a chair opposite by her husband who having made passes between us left the room her eyes were closed and she drew long breaths presently she said where shall i go with you to the spirit world or to some place on earth i said tell me about my home for i knew that no one in boston could know anything of my home in falmouth or my personal affairs this woman then went on to describe in a vague way my father's house a description that could apply to many brick houses she then mentioned several persons in the house and incidents i was sure were not true i was so disgusted at the whole affair that i cut short the interview and went back triumphantly to my friend at concord the old man went to see the medium and she said that she found me so sceptical that the rapport was imperfect the old man however fulfilled his contract mrs freeman had said i see a lady who is a good deal worried about somebody named john the selection of a name so common rather amused me but i afterwards had to show my neighbor a letter from my mother saying that she was troubled by the betrothal of a relative named john from agassiz i derived great benefit when he rose before us in his class a rosy flush on his face indicated his delight in communicating his knowledge his shapely form eager movements his body thought large soft eyes easy unconscious gestures and sonorous english with just enough foreign accent to add piquancy together made agassiz the perfect lecturer he was skilful too as a draughtsman and often while speaking made a few marks on the blackboard which conveyed a complete impression of the thing elucidated in the warmer months agassiz used to take his class out into the country there being no difficulty of finding in the neighborhood places of scientific interest several times we visited nahant and i can never forget the charm of our sitting there on the rocks while agassiz pointed out on them the autographs of the glaciers recording their ancient itinerary or standing on top of some boulder he would trace with his finger in the rocks far out in the sea the ancient outlines of the land or with some small fossil in his hand or peculiar shell he would track the progress of organic development on one ramble at nahant agassiz devoted himself to the sea serpent which had twice been reported as seen off that coast one of our class had unintentionally suggested the subject by mentioning the recent apparition and smiling at it as a sailor's yarn 
but Agassiz, in his always good-natured way, said that although there were no doubt exaggerations, it was not quite safe to ridicule the story. He then proceeded to give a summary of all the narratives about the alleged monster, with references to time and place that amazed us, as the subject was of casual suggestion. He described huge snake-like saurians, of which some may have been amphibious or aquatic, and whose extinction might not be complete. One day in his lecture-room Agassiz displayed some new fossils, mostly of saurians, which had just been added to his collection. They gave him a text for the general review of the morphological chain of reptilian life. As he proceeded, darting off at times to his blackboard, and comparing the extinct form with contemporary fauna, he became more and more animated, his face reddening with excitement, until at last he said, "'Gentlemen, I ask you to forgive me if today I end my lecture at this point, although the hour is not out. I assure you that while I have been describing these extinct creatures, they have taken on a sort of life. They have been crawling and darting about me. I have heard their screaming and hissing, and am really exhausted. I regret it, gentlemen, but I trust that you will excuse me.' Our admiration for the great teacher was such as to break through all rules, and we gave him a hearty cheer. He bowed low to us and quickly disappeared. The determined repudiation by Agassiz of the discovery of Darwin caused something like dismay in scientific circles throughout Europe as well as in America. Concerning this I have some memories that may interest men of science. When I belonged to the class of Agassiz, 1853-54, he repeatedly referred to the hypothesis of continuous development of species in a way which was suggested to me a possibility that he may have had private information of what was to come from Charles Darwin. In his introduction, 1859, Darwin speaks of having submitted a sketch of his work to Sir Charles Lyell and Sir Joseph Hooker, quote, the latter having seen my sketch of 1844, Either of these, or Darwin himself, might have consulted Agassiz. Most of us knew about such a theory only through the popular vestiges of creation, to which he paid little attention. He seemed to have been excited by some German, perhaps Schopenhauer, in whose works the idea of self-evolution in organic nature is potential, of whom he spoke with a flush of anger when adding, He says himself that he is an atheist. At any rate, during 1854 especially, his mind was much occupied with the subject. I also remember well that during this time he often dwelt upon what he called the ideal connection between the different forms of life, describing with drawings the embryonic changes. In that progress no unbridged chasm over the dawn of organic life. At the end of every week a portion of the afternoon was given to our putting questions to Agassiz, the occasion often giving rise to earnest discussion. These repeatedly raised the theory of development in the vestiges of creation. Agassiz frequently referred to the spiritual evolution with which Emerson was particularly associated. But just after Darwin's discovery had appeared, I happened to be dining at the Saturday Club in Boston when something like an encounter between these two friends occurred. Agassiz was seated at the head of the table, Emerson being on his right. It was near the end of the dinner, and around the long table those present were paired off in conversation. But being next to Emerson, I could enjoy the conversation he held with Agassiz. 
After a time, the professor made some little fling at the new theory. Emerson said smilingly that on reading it he had at once expressed satisfaction at confirmation of what he, Agassiz, had long been telling us. All of those beautiful harmonies of form with form throughout nature, which he had so finely divined, were now proved to be genuine relationship. Yes, said Agassiz eagerly, ideal relationship, connected thoughts of a being acting with an intelligent purpose. Emerson, to whom the visible universe was all a manifestation of things ideal, said that the physical selection appeared to him a counterpart of the ideal development. Whereupon Agassiz exclaimed, There I cannot agree with you, and changed the subject. There was at Concord a course of lectures every year, one of which was given by Agassiz. His coming was an important event. He was always a guest of the Emersons, where the literary people of the village were able to meet him. On one such occasion I remember listening to a curious conversation between Agassiz and A. Bronson Alcott, who lived and moved in a waking dream. After delighting Agassiz by repudiating the theory of the development of man from animals, he filled the professor with dismay by equally decrying the notion that God could ever have created ferocious and poisonous beasts. When Agassiz asked who could have created them, Alcott said they were the various forms of human sin. Man was the first being created, and the horrible creatures were originated by his lusts and animalisms. When Agassiz, bewildered, urged that geology proved the animals existed before man, Alcott suggested that man might have originated them before his appearance in his present form. Agassiz having given a signal of distress, Emerson came to the rescue with some reconciling discourse on the development of life and thought, with which the professor had to be content, although there was a sousson of evolutionism in every word our host uttered. There was a good deal of suspicion in America that the refusal of Agassiz to accept Darwin's discovery was due to the influence of religious leaders in Boston, and particularly to that of his father-in-law, Thomas Carey, who had so freely devoted his wealth to the professor's researches. Some long intimacy with those families convinced me that there was no such influence exerted by the excellent Mr. Carey but that it was the old Swiss pastor, his father, surviving in him. He had, indeed, departed far from the paternal creed. He repudiated all miracles at a time when Mr. Carey and other Unitarians upheld them tenaciously. He threw a bomb into the missionary camp by his assertion of racial diversity of origin. His utterances against Darwinism were evidently deistic, and had nothing whatever to do with any personal interest, except that he had a horror of being called an atheist. I say deistic, for theistic denotes a more spiritual conception of deity than I can associate with Agassiz. He had adopted Humboldt's cosmos idea, attached a dynamic deity to it, but did not appear to have any mystical or even reverential sentiment about nature, and pointed out humorously what he called nature's jokes. I was sometimes invited to his house. He had by his first wife two beautiful daughters, and the son, Alexander, now eminent. His wife, nay Carey, and her sisters were ladies of finest culture and ability. Agassiz was a perfect character in his home life, and neighborly also. Occasionally he would get together with the young girls of Cambridge, and guide them among the fossils, 
telling them the wonders of the primeval world. Longfellow told me that Agassiz was entreating him to write a poem on the primeval world. End of chapter 12